Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. I'm Mo, and in this two-part series, I'll be talking with Sid and Deanne about the Mapping Prevention Project, what we did, and what we learned. Thank you both for being here again. I'm really glad that we get to talk again about mapping prevention. And I was wondering if you wanted to introduce yourselves real quickly. Oh, sure. I'm Sid Jordan. I am a co-researcher on the Mapping Prevention Project. I'm also an assistant professor at Portland State University in the School of Social Work. And I'm Deanne. I'm one of the other co-researchers. And I am currently a manager at API Chaya. And yeah, really excited to be here. So when we left off last time, you had introduced us to the core ideas in practice that came from the work being done by Mapping Prevention. And it was just all of these great interviews and surveys and the think tank. And so I'm wondering if before we talk about those core ideas, could you say a little bit about how you used research or a data-driven process to arrive at those core ideas? Yeah, I could start with that. So this part of the study where we talk about these four core ideas or what we might think of as theories of prevention, these are really driven by the interviews that we did. And we conducted 46 in-depth interviews and used those interviews through a collaborative process. Part of our participatory research approach included not only conducting those interviews as a team, but also analyzing them together. So we used that data transcripts from those interviews as a way to really arrive at our thinking about sort of these four forms of practice that we saw most, um, most occurring in the community that we're working in, King County, and with the kinds of organizers that we decided to interview. So I might let Dee talk a little bit about, you know, who we interviewed and why, how we approached people, and then what the sort of interviews look like. Great. So yeah, we, we sent out an email to, I don't know, quite a bit of people and on a couple of lists, let people know we were going to be doing this. It was kind of amazing, actually, to hear from people, you know, we definitely wanted to focus on a couple of specific communities, BIPOC folks, especially Black and Indigenous people, people of color, and also the queer and trans community. We had some ideas about to hear from a certain number of young people or people under the age of 25, also some elders. And it was, we had a really positive response from people. Like people were really excited about it. In addition to like, you know, kind of sharing that we were doing these interviews, we reached out to people individually. And I don't think there was a single person that I reached out to individually that kind of didn't get back to us. I didn't, I kind of have the list in front of me of, of folks that we did do the interviews with. And I don't know, it just brings me so much joy right now, just thinking about kind of seeing their names all together. And then the other thing that was fun was that we really thought about, I was thinking about listening to a couple of the interviews and just, there was just so much laughter and kind of like enjoyment in the process of interviewing and we wanted to make sure that when people left the meetings, they really felt like it had been a good experience of being at the meetings. And so similar with the interviews, we wanted people to be 
having a good time and having it feel like productive. And I remember like in some of the interviews that I did kind of coming back to people later with like, you wanted to hear more about this or this resource. And so I have that for you. And yeah, in addition to emailing with people, we also, you know, there were some people that we texted with or just kind of had more um, one-on-one outreach to. And I think a lot of the people that, you know, some of them met through this process and like have stayed connected. So that's also really sweet. I think it might be useful to say that we were really invested in talking with people who were doing anti-violence work, broadly defined, who saw their work as anti-racist or anti-oppressive in some central way, and also thought about their work as uh, preventing domestic and sexual violence specifically. And we put out a call for people who wanted to participate in these interviews too through the community with those criteria. So we had a mix of people that we knew and reached out to and, and people who responded to that call to participate. I think in the end, almost everyone we spoke to, I think 43 out of 46% of the interviews were Black, Indigenous, or people of color, or I should say Black, Indigenous, and or people of color. And a really good portion of those people were also queer and trans and or organizing in queer and trans communities as part of their anti-violence work. Yeah, I was part of the interview process and it was really great to do and and to be a part of. So what were some of the kinds of questions that you wanted to make sure you included in the interviews? We had definitely like a list of questions that we asked and we brought people through like a training before the interview process. We really wanted people to kind of like, yeah, gain the skill around interviewing, but also a lot of the interviews ended up being very conversational, but trying to ask folks, you know, what what brings you to an interview like this? How are you connected to gender-based violence, to domestic or sexual violence? And we got some really cool responses from people there. Just, I think, trying to offer like really broad questions so people could kind of share about like the depth of their of their work, how they saw their work connecting to anti-oppressive frameworks, you know, talking about their anti-racism work. I think one of the exciting things about a participatory research project is when we have this group that could really develop the kinds of questions that we felt like would be interesting for us to talk to people about not just for the sort of purpose of the end goal, which was, you know, creating these recommendations, but also just what would help strengthen our relationships with each other in the community and what would help us refine our own violence prevention practices. So that was sort of like the heart of the idea of even doing interviews to begin with. And Dee made this really sweet sort of idea of matching people in our group with somebody who she thought or knew from, you know, what she knew about both members of our group and people we'd be interviewing about who might like make a good match um, in terms of sort of deepening connections and learning. And we saw just some very like sweet things come out of that where people then joined other people's projects or started working together, collaborating on something else in the world. So I feel like that was one of those benefits of doing the research in this way that we saw as an outcome of that. So I know out of these interviews and out of the surveys and the work that was done came really four theories of practice. And I'm wondering if you can just say more about those. That's been such a big finding of this group. 
So the idea of using data to really understand what violence prevention work meant in the lives and work and community building practices of the people that we interviewed meant that we were really using the transcripts to explore, you know, what people were doing, why they were doing it, what sort of underneath their ideas about how they organized and how that related to preventing domestic and sexual violence. That's what we were looking for when we read the transcripts. The first category I wanted to talk about was what we called community and belonging. It actually shows up fourth in the report. I wanted to talk about community and belonging first because it's kind of an all-encompassing framework, This and it's sort of an idea that's central to all the themes but it also stands alone. So we just saw patterns across all of our interviews, people talking about building community, strengthening community as really central to any sort of other kinds of violence prevention and violence intervention work that uh, communities, strengthening relationships and communities are a sort of antidote to the kinds of isolation and separation that we know that patterns of domestic and sexual violence rely on. So people who are more isolated and do not have as many community contacts become more vulnerable to these kinds of forms of violence and therefore really doing the work to to forge a sense of belonging, a sense of kinship, a sense of relation is in itself inextricably linked to preventing violence. So central to this theory is that we can prevent violence by really cultivating a sense of belonging not only to prevent vulnerabilities from uh, being targets of violence, but from also enacting violence so that communities are also are the site of being held accountable for our actions. It was also like the sense of being connected to a community was really considered sort of a prerequisite for some of the transformative community level interventions we also had seen in our practice and and saw people talk about in the interviews. So of course, when we think about intervening in domestic and sexual violence outside of a criminal legal system, we're thinking about the ways that communities can sort of engage in some of these practices that really relies on having close relationships. Yeah, Dee, do you want to talk about some of how community and belonging showed up in the interviews and practice? Yeah. You know, the first group that came to my mind when thinking about this theory of practice was actually, I think, the first interview that I did and and thinking about a group that was working with young people and that, that were interested and connected to a, to sports and is also pretty place-based in King County. And, and I was also just thinking about, you know, we interviewed a lot of people that work at culturally specific programs. So, you know, either working in Muslim community or working in API community or, and we talked to folks working in African-American community locally, the Somali community. And I don't know, I think it just, it added so much depth to have all of these different kinds of identities that people, you know, were connected to. I, I think the first thing to is like around like places where people already were or where they were like actively choosing. And then that being the place where folks were doing the prevention work. We had a quote that came out, came out of the interviews that I wanted to share from one of the interviews, which was, I cannot imagine a way out of oppression, violence, domestic violence without a collectivist communal approach. I really love hearing that quote. It 
totally brings me back to when we were doing the interviews and reading what came from the interviews and doing that sort of like data work and finding the themes. And it also makes me feel really hopeful, which is something I could use right now. Okay, let's talk about the next one, which is abolition and transformation. So abolition and transformation as a theory of practice for violence prevention really relies on understanding that certain institutions have created sort of exceptional or additional vulnerabilities to violence for some people. So when we're talking about abolition and transformation and how this showed up in through our interviews with organizers we spoke to, we're talking about those who are sort of thinking about violence prevention as requiring us to eliminate and fundamentally change some of these institutions where we know violence is incubated. So people were talking about sort of a whole gamut of institutions where they saw that harm was reproduced or violence became more likely. Um, and thinking about how to build alternatives to those and also work for political and social change where those kinds of institutions no longer became um, viable. So people were talking about sort of popularizing non-institutional tools for violence prevention. So by what I mean by that is just thinking about sort of like how can we encourage everyday people to think of themselves as agents of change and agents of um, care that didn't rely on some of these systems that have been built up to do that kind of care work for us that have in turn created more violence, especially for folks of color and for queer and trans people and other marginalized groups. So this this theory of practice was engaged in a variety of of ways. I think Dee is going to talk a little bit about um, some examples we saw. And even if people weren't using that term abolition, we saw that as a through line logic for how people were kind of relating to their work as violence preventionists, really thinking about, you know, building up community approaches to violence prevention. Yeah, the, you know, we talked to a lot of people that were involved in some of the mutual aid efforts here in King County. And it's exciting just to think about folks that were just trying to respond to so many needs right in the beginning of COVID that were just so vast, you know, people were responding to any kind of, any kind of need that was coming up. So pretty exciting just to think about folks that were just like, okay, the, you know, society, the government, people aren't showing up. Like this is how we want to do it. And this is how we're going to run it. And we're going to figure it out. And we had this amazing quote, which was a lot of the times it felt like our generational charge is just to be the dismantlers, not the builders. I didn't know that we would have a chance to be the builders. It's both daunting, but also inspiring. As Sid was talking about some, some of the things that emerged in this, in, in this theory of practice, it was really exciting to see people that were these like these things aren't happening. Like, what are we going to do about it? We don't know how to get everybody masks. We don't know how to get people food that they need and just basic essential needs. Like, how can we make sure that's happening in a way that is safe and also responsive to what to what's real right now? I really like the idea that this generation will get to also be the builders and that building is already happening. I love hearing this come through from what we learned in the interviews and through people's work. So thanks for talking about that. The next one is healing and accountability. Can we talk more about that one? Yeah, so in this theory of practice, 
uh, organizers we spoke to, practitioners of violence prevention, we're really making the link between experiencing violence and the trauma of experiencing violence and the cycles of reenacting that violence. And so healing and accountability acknowledges cycles of harm. It acknowledges the needs of survivors, but also people who have enacted harm and thinks about healing work fundamentally reparative and required for violence prevention. But I think what was so exciting about the ways that we um, were able to like think with people about healing was also moving from only thinking about it in terms of an individual or even like a family system to thinking about what it means to heal and repair some of the sort of like the fundamental harms of let's say the nation. I mean, we're in the U.S. talking about this with people who were thinking deeply about histories of, of colonization and slavery and how we have to reckon with these systemic harms, historical harms, present day harms to really undo the problem of interpersonal violence. So this theory of change is thinking at both levels or all levels about what healing means too, not just in the interpersonal sphere or like the therapeutic, but also thinking in terms of political work that's about kind of like large scale healing, whether that's uh, reparations projects, about um, environmental protections, about even unionizing social service workers as a way to kind of create response to the exploitation of workers, social service workers in this case, because many of the people that we talked to for this project were in social service settings or had worked in those settings. So really thinking expansively about what healing means and this relationship then of healing to accountability. So creating accountable institutions, the unionization example, I think is uh, a good analogy for how we heard people talking about that more broadly, like their work to create more accountable institutions and how that would then re refract back onto more accountable relationships between people. I guess I would just say underlining this theory is the idea that we can prevent domestic and sexual violence by acknowledging harms, working to address those harms and recognizing that everyone has experienced harm and everyone can benefit from learning how to address trauma. Yeah, this is one of my favorite aspects of what was found through this work, because we talk a lot, I think in the prevention field specifically about the different levels of prevention, like community level prevention, societal level prevention. And I love the way that this ties in how having healing and accountability within institutions and communities can really create that atmosphere where we really can prevent future violence. So thanks for talking about that. I know you have a quote too that you want to share, right, Dean? Yeah. So the traditional way of healing in Western culture didn't really help me, but having access to indigenous medicine and ceremonies has been really healing. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when I think about the interviews that come to my mind first, I, I think about different healers that we talk to, both getting to work, you know, either as like individual organizers or within a culturally specific program where like ceremony and traditional medicine got to be a part of the work that they were doing, that it wasn't like a separate part of the work, that it was something that that happened like in inside of inside of the work. and 
yeah, I, I think about kids, you know, just getting to to grow up with with their parents and with their elders, really getting to be connected to their culture and having it be like a valued part of their of their childhood too, right? Like knowing the names for for natural medicines and for for plants and even just for water or, or how do you enter the water in a way that's in line with your ancestors and and how just being connected with other people who are also trying to teach teach their kids those practices like how that in and of itself is is so healing and you know what what's possible like the world that we want to live in being built actively thanks for sharing about this and these three so far there's one left if you can even believe it we've covered so much already and it I feel like it encompasses so much. So the last uh, theory of practice is liberation and agency. The last one might be most familiar to people who are listening in because I feel like it might have the most overlaps with what we might think of as sort of traditional domestic and sexual violence prevention work. And that is a theory of liberation and agency. So the people we spoke with talked about sort of liberatory approaches or liberation-based Uh, approaches to violence prevention um, in terms of freedom from oppression, in terms of envisioning or enacting the kind of world that we want, kind of world that exists when oppression has ended, and the theory kind of imagining um, a transformation of existing conditions of domination, which we know kind of underlying patterns of domestic and sexual violence. I would say this was the kind of theory that we heard about across you know, every interview, the word itself, liberation, you know, comes up in many of the transcripts. Um, it was spoken about as sort of a aspirational concept, of course, um, this, this coming of what, what we might like bring forth. But the language of liberation really was in everyday practice. It wasn't sort of imagined, but it was something that people spoke about sort of being manifesting in sort of an everyday way. It was characterized by people working together to gain knowledge about domination and oppression, really naming and articulating what oppression is and how it shows up in people's lives as a way to overpower, you know, the ways that those can become internalized. It was also linked to this idea of sort of collective agency then and solidarity. So what can be sort of brought together by people learning together about oppression, by naming oppression, and by um, working together to overpower and change um, the ways oppression works. People really spoke about developing a, a liberatory form of violence prevention in an intersectional way. So really not thinking about gender oppression alone, but always thinking about it in relation to racism, especially since that was at the center of our study, but also other forms of oppression. And then to think then that sort of a liberatory approach requires us to think and learn together about how those systems of oppression interact. So really thinking about um, how to reach and utilize these um, theories of practice with people who are particularly vulnerable um, and thinking about um, self-determination itself as sort of inherent to, but also requiring kind of collective action. So not um, sort of a theory in which an individual can sort of on their own just uh, rise above oppressive circumstances, but to really think about uh, liberation-based theory as one that um, requires people to come together and work together. 
yeah the so a quote that we had that dovetails with this was everyone is internalizing information about white supremacy and imperialist patriarchal world and you have to actively unlearn it to not reproduce it and i i was i was thinking about you know one of the kind of specific programs or organizing efforts that this makes me think about is actually working on like defense campaigns or you know criminalized survivors campaigns and and trying to kind of fight back and say like actually what the state is saying about this is just totally not true and we're gonna have a whole other analysis and way that we think about um, what should happen for this person <laughs> and I think this really speaks to too how you know that that kind of organizing where a group a huge group of people even internationally are, is trying to say like this person should not be criminalized for for protecting themselves, right? Really kind of fits in neatly, I think, to some of the other categories that we talked about. And in particular, in the last minute, I was like, maybe we should, maybe I should talk about, you know, defense campaigns actually in the like abolition and transformation area really fits in there. And I think this was like a common thing that came up when when we were doing the looking more closely at the research was like or and the interviews in particular was like they they all in some way or another could fit into different categories or different you know these different sections and we had a um Sid I I thought really brilliantly came up with a a way to describe that a couple of different ways but one was like a Venn diagram where we kind of looked at how they were overlapping all of these categories and that and that many of the folks that we interviewed and many of the projects really could fit into to all of these you know categories and a, and a lot of the work around anti-racism does as well so just wanted to speak to that we also have on um, page 45 of the report we actually did also try to make a table where we kind of distinguished these four theories of practice in a more simplified version than we just described them now. It's just one page. Um, and while we saw all the overlaps between these practices, we actually found it like useful and productive to try to articulate that there are multiple theories of practice operating here and to try to name and clarify what some of them are can help, I think, programs and projects and organizers really think through like where they're intervening um, and where they're working, what, you know, sort of what angle they're working, because we need all these angles kind of happening at the same time, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it makes sense for every program to try to um, enact and do every theory at the same time. I will say for me, it's really expanded the way that I view my work and what the possibilities are in prevention. And when we're thinking about things like community level prevention or societal level prevention, I feel like more doors are open than I thought were in the past and more possibilities exist. Um, and I'm really excited about that. What do you most want people to know or to integrate into their work based on what came out of the mapping prevention project? I think I would love for people to know like that they're probably doing a lot of the things already that need to be done and maybe they're doing that in a way that isn't like very supported you know I think especially when we're thinking about like queer and trans community and BIPOC community and just 
you're you're doing a lot of amazing work already. And one quote that I was just like trying to scroll through and find was around, you know, if you're if you're doing gender-based violence prevention work and, and doing it well, then that also comes with like doing anti-racist work and doing, you know, other forms of anti-oppression work and and vice versa, right? If, and then also something about how like the funders aren't the bosses, you know, I, I think something around uh, we saw this as an opportunity to get to kind of lift up the work that was already happening and and sort of showcase, you know, it and how amazing and how awesome it was and how transformational it was. And also to say, like, back to funders, like, there's a, a lot of really amazing work happening already. How can we sort of fund it in a way that isn't going to be holding people back? You know, and I think that research doesn't have to be scary or like it can really support and help help you. And it doesn't have to be like a grueling time while while you're getting to it. And, you know, you can learn just as much from the process as you do from the product at the end. So. Yeah, there has been like a dominant idea of violence prevention of domestic and sexual violence prevention. Um, that is pretty narrow in terms of where it thinks that that happens and who are the sort of like imagined beneficiaries of those programs, like the middle school classroom concept of domestic and sexual violence prevention. So one thing I really love about this project is not that it's developing other kinds of violence prevention work, but that it's recognizing and acknowledging other kinds of violence prevention work. And I think that that by doing that, then we also could build and develop other kinds of programs and that funding could follow that and policy could follow that. And research, yeah, that we could think beyond sort of just measuring the impacts of a one-time or one you know, workshop series in a school. But I think it's really imperative that we begin to like think about violence prevention in this really much more expansive way in the field. Thank you both. It's so great to talk about this project all the time. It always makes me feel so happy and so hopeful. I want to let folks know about where you can go to read more about the project, read about the people who were involved, get a hold of the resources, look at the map, go to nappingprevention.org. And then we also wanted to just let you know that if you are curious about what people who were part of the Mapping Prevention Project are up to now, we'll be putting some of that information in our show notes. So make sure and check that out too. And you can find the links there also. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you about this project and think about the good memories of us working together. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resource on the Go. For more resources and information about preventing sexual assault, visit our website at nsvrc.org. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org.